0: George usually uh, gives the children's message from the gospel text. Uh, but he, he asked me earlier, uh, uh, am I supposed to talk to the kids about John the Baptist? <laughs> and, and his head on a plate? I said, no, no, just go, go to Romans. Go to Romans. But in our story, From the Gospel, there is hope. John the Baptist, or baptizer, was a messenger of hope. But having said that, of all the things you might say about John, one of them probably wouldn't be that he was a hopeful person. He came out of the wilderness, Mark says, Proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Turn around. There's still time. All will be forgiven. Justice is coming. Get ready. Matthew adds this detail. When John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees, that is, the religious and politically connected coming for baptism, he screamed at them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear some fruit for God's sake. Luke's gospel adds, even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Very hopeful, I think. In other words, get ready. Get your act together before it's too late. On the face of it, there's not much hope here. Lots of threats, but not much hope. Harry Truman, in the presidential campaign of 1948, took a train all over the country. He stopped in little towns along the way, whistle stops. He spoke to crowds from the back of the train. And during one speech, someone in the crowd yelled, give them hell, Harry. In an interview years later, Truman insisted. I never gave anybody hell. I just told the truth, and they thought it was hell. (laughs) The same might be said of John the Baptizer. He told a hard truth to some, and it sounded like hell. John was like a thunderstorm raging out of the desert. All hell breaks loose, and then the skies clear. John cleared the air. You could smell the ozone. In the aftermath of a storm, there is beauty and hope. So it was for some. But for others, all hell was breaking loose around them. And among them was Herod Antipas, who had taken his brother's wife into his own bed And John told everyone who would listen, it isn't right. It isn't right. It isn't right. And word got back to Antipas, and he threw John into jail. The powerful don't like those who speak a hard truth that expose their lies and reveal to everyone what they really are. So they silence the messenger. They threaten them. They ruin them. And sometimes they kill them. In our text today, Mark tells us the backstory of Herod, Antipas, and John. Herod's brother's wife, Herodias, whom he had brought to his own bed, had a grudge against John. She wanted him killed. At his birthday party, Herod's daughter danced for him. And he was so grateful that he told her she could have anything that she asked for, even half of his kingdom. And after talking with her mother, she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. But Herod feared John, Mark tells us and he believed him to be a good and holy man. He just wished he would shut up or change the subject. He actually liked to listen to John. John perplexed him. Herod Antipas couldn't figure him out. Everyone listened to John. He preached an unsettling, uncompromising, revolutionary hope, a hope that threatened Herod's hold on power and exposed his hypocrisy. And now Herodias wanted John's head on a platter, something he reluctantly gave. And now this mostly remorseless man was haunted so much by what he had done that when he heard about Jesus, he thought that Jesus was John, the baptizer, come back from the dead, coming back to get even, to get him, head reattached. In life, John bothered him. Now dead, John haunted him. The justice and mercy of God brings hope to some but it brings terror to others. Killing John, Herod Antipas thought he had killed the dangerous truth and hope that John proclaimed. But then came Jesus, for Herod, John's ghost, the one whom John himself had described, I baptize with water, but after me is coming someone who will baptize with fire. I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptizer sees Jesus and says to his disciples, look over there. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the real deal. He's the one we've been hoping for. In her book, Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and the Art of Living, Krista Tippett talks about an axial age when a handful of people, among them the Hebrew prophets, began to pen, began to write, as she says, a people into being. Among their convictions, she says, was the startling proposition that the well-being of others The stranger, the orphan, the outcast, was linked to one's own well being. In them, she says, humanity gave voice to the questions that have animated religion and philosophy ever since. What does it mean to be human? What matters in life? What matters in death? And how can we give ourselves to each other and to the world? And more to the point, I would add another question or two. What is hope, and where can we find it? Our spiritual lives, she says, are where we reckon head-on with the mystery of ourselves and the mystery of each other. In the last few hundred years, she goes on, we have tried to get rid of mystery in the West, but all our attempts have failed. In our somewhat chastened age, she says, we're circling back to the underlying reality that was there all along. The human condition in all its mess and all its glory remains the ground on which all of our ambitions and all of our hopes flourish or crash. The discourse of our common lives, she adds, inclines toward despair. But the world, she said, is abundant with beauty and courage and grace. And I might add, hope. And out of the wilderness, into our chaos, into our doubt, into our despair, comes someone like John the Baptizer, who shakes things up, who turns things sideways, who tells the truth, which for some of us is a word of reckless hope, reminding us of the way things are supposed to be, while for others it is a threat, it is hell, and the voice of hope must be silenced. Drowned in lies day after day until the truth no longer matters and what is wrong becomes right. The most ridiculous things repeated over and over and over again become normal. We yawn at cruelty and then unexpected. Echoing from deep within the dungeon come the words of John the Baptizer. Who warned you of the wrath to come? And the Herods of this world shudder. Haunted by the truth. Terrified of a real hope that will turn their world upside down. you think this is a couple thousand years ago, just look around you. Look at the headlines. Just in the last week, John is still shouting and Herod is still trembling, trying to kill the truth, trying to silence hope against the odds. It's always been this way. But especially now. The American poet, James Russell Lowell, in the great hymn, Once to Every Man and Nation, writes, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Listen carefully and you can hear John the baptizer Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight. And the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and that light. And then come these words, quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in one of his most powerful, powerful sermons. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet tis truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. John screamed at Herod from the grave, and Herod saw Jesus as John come back from the dead. Jesus himself called Herod that fox, and it was not meant to be a compliment. Herod and the Romans killed Jesus, tried to kill the ghost once and for all, but God's hope did not die, whether served on a platter or hung on a cross the most radical hope of all, the resurrection turns everything sideways. That scaffold sways the future. We are people of resurrection. All of us here today, we are people of reckless hope. We are not ghosts haunting kings but we proclaim a life that is stronger than death and the empty threats of tyrants are confronted by an empty tomb and a hope that will not die a ridiculous hope yes but as Paul asks in Romans who hopes for what can be seen Glenn Palmberg gave me a book the other day, Reframation. It isn't that there isn't hope. We have turned uh, the world sideways, and we have framed things and choose not to see the hope. Instead, we have framed the world with hopelessness or have let others frame it with lies and greed and fear and even cynical unbelief. The gospel, the radical hope of the cross and the resurrection reframes everything. To those who are perishing, Paul says, the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is a threat to the powerful, to all the Herods, and it is deliverance to those who are in bondage. Years ago in Hartford at the Asylum Hill Congregational Church, I heard uh, Terry Anderson for years was an Associated Press reporter in the Middle East, and he was, as many of you know, held hostage for seven years, hidden in basements, tortured, humiliated, starved. But in his talk that day, there wasn't a trace of bitterness. He had been threatened, he had been silenced, he had been given up for dead. And yet, he found a hope in the darkness and in bondage that he never would have found had he never been in chains. He writes in his book, uh, Den of Lions, about gathering in the darkness and sharing the Eucharist together with a priest who was among them. And he wrote this. Five men huddled close against the night and our oppressors around a bit of stale bread hoarded from a scanty meal and a candle lit not only as a symbol, but to read the text by. The priest's as poorly clad, as drawn with strain as any, but his voice is calm, his face serene. This is the core of his existence, the reason he was born. Behind him, I can see his predecessors in their generations, back to the catacombs, heads nodding in approval, hands with his tracing out the stately ritual, adding the power of their suffering and their faith to his and to ours. The ancient words shake off their dust and they come alive. The voices of their authors echo clearly from the damp, bare walls. The familiar prayers come straight out of our hearts. Once again, Christ's promise is fulfilled. His presence fills us. The miracle is real. And then, once released, in compiling all these poems he wrote and hid, one of them he calls Stigmata. Seven years in chains, while love lies barren, where children grow, one lost, one not known, and others left unseated, now will never be. Grim, terrible years in subterranean cells, a pawn of evil hypocrites passed from hand to hand, taped and bagged like some dead meat, despised, inedible, but useful in a trade. Harsh and painful years of darkness, damp, and dirt, humiliations heaped in myriads, hatred and contempt received, returned. And then he asks Wasted, empty years? Not quite. No years are empty in a life. And wasted? That depends on what is made of them and after. Don't despair. In the darkness, God's hope shines brightest. And for now, as James Russell Lowell says, though we share truth's wretched crust, remember, hope is not dead. Claim the hope that never dies. Whatever your discouragement, Whatever your doubt, however dark it might be, claim that hope. Claim the epiphany light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never figured it out. So may it be. Thanks be to God. Amen.